Hello listeners and welcome to the show. This is Sam Abrika, the CEO of Nova Money, an AI financial planner designed to help you build financial freedom. How confident do you feel during job interviews? Today, we're going to talk about job application and career progression with Chris Delaney, who is the author of the book, What is Your Interview Identity? Hello, Chris, and welcome to the Nova Money Mindset. Very excited to have you today to talk about how to ace your job interview. Hi, Sam. Thank you for inviting me down. Really looking forward to this show. Chris, why did you have such an interest of acing job interviews? What's your story? Well, I'm passionate about helping people. And the one thing people really struggle with is passing job interviews. So I've done hypnotherapy, I've done life coaching, I've done resilience training. And all those skills that I learned over the 20 years I've been helping people fit perfectly in getting career professionals to be successful in that job interview. So they can get a pay rise and live that lifestyle that they want to live. Having a good job is, for most people, the way that they will earn their income, that will determine their lifestyle, how much they can save, how much they can invest, their confidence, whether they're doing something that they're happy to do. And yet, it's a source of stress for many people. So I hire many, many candidates, juniors, mid-level, and I often notice that they don't have the right approach and mindset for passing job interviews. Like my number one observation is too many people try to act like robots from their first <laughs> letter. They apply like robots. They kind of believe that companies are looking for robots. Do you tick the box of, of these skills? If yes, then you're a good candidate. And they kind of forget, well, we're all human beings. We want to see whether you're motivated, whether you have the skills, whether you demonstrate that you have the, the right, not just technical capabilities, but the right cultural fit. You're so, you're so right there, Sam, because there's kind of two things going on here. You've got someone who's applying for a job interview, and it's not something we do every single day or every single week or even every single month. So it's like a new experience for most people. And we're scared of new experiences. We're scared of the unknown. So people go to the job interview terrified. And like you said, when we get there, we'll just use the robotic techniques that we learned off Google where we'll go and we'll say A, B, and C because we presume that's what the employer wants to hear. But in reality, people hire people based on do they fit into the company culture have they got the same values as the organization do they believe in the vision that the company is trying to achieve employers don't just recruit you because of your skill set they recruit you because of who you are as an individual right so can you tell us about how did you start how did you get your first job we had a chat and <laughs> you had pretty interesting story yeah, so I'm a dyslexic loser. I went to high school, found that I was dyslexic. I couldn't read, couldn't write. I was doing terrible in all my classes. On top of that, I also had this terrible list. So I couldn't even talk. So you got this guy who couldn't read, write, or talk properly. Left school with no qualifications and got into dead-end jobs. My first job, Sam, paid one... That's hard to believe when, when we hear and see you today. Well, this is it. This is why I kind of like my journey because I've gone from this place where I really struggled early on and my mindset was all like negative. I'm never going to achieve anything. I'm going to be a failure. I'm always going to be a loser. I'll never have any money. But my mindset now is that I'm going to be successful or I am successful. I'm enjoying my life. I got a positive mindset. I'm going to be, you know, successful in all areas of my life. And it's the journey that taught me to change my mindset. So I, I left school with no qualifications. My first job, I got paid like one pound an hour, 
Like, it'd be just ridiculous, isn't it? Like a pound an hour. <laughs> no. Yeah, just working like dead-end like jobs, like low-skilled jobs, and I didn't really have any skills. But I always had a passion for helping people. I always was that person where my friends came to talk to me. I was the great listener. I, I was very good at kind of giving people like advice or asking questions so they could like make choices. So I thought, if I'm not going to get paid for doing the thing I'm passionate about, I'll just volunteer. So... I used to take uh, disabled adults hiking and rock climbing. I used to join scout groups and youth groups and give like support to the, uh, these young kids. And as I was doing all this volunteering work, I was realizing that I do have this natural ability, this natural skill set, this passion to help people. And I thought, how can I improve this? And I kind of knew I'd have to learn to read and write a little bit better to advance my skills in the volunteering sector. I'll have to learn to read and write. So... I re-enrolled in college and got some maths on English. I started reading more books and all the books was on self-development and coaching. Uh, and I started building up this skill set and seeing the success in the young people that I was supporting. Anyway, back in the, in the job world, I'm doing these uh, new positions now. It's still low-skilled jobs, working in warehousing, but my money is a little bit more than £1 an hour. I'm on £1.10 <laughs> an hour now. <laughs> so you were like working the lowest-skilled job, the lowest of the lowest in any kind of rank or metric, paying, being paid £1, £1.10 an hour. Yeah, because this is, wow. this is my Wow, how mind. did it feel at the time? Well, this is the mindset because I was doing low-skill jobs, but some of my friends was also doing low-skill jobs, but their mindset was better because they believed that they had skills but not qualifications. So they was getting like better-paid, low-skill jobs. But my mindset was so low that I never went for any new jobs because I just didn't think I was successful. I had an imposter syndrome even in the low-skill sector industry. But I had a lucky break. In one of my jobs, I got a chance to do a faultless truck driving course. So a faultless truck is the big machines that lift up the pallets in warehouses and take them to the vans. Uh, so I went on a course to do that, and a guy came down to the warehouse and was teaching us. Uh, and me and my colleagues uh, were doing this course, and because I'm a kinesthetic learner, I learned by my hands. I was great at it. I got in a truck, and I was driving around, lifting up the pallets, taking it through the warehouse, You know, loving this new skill I was learning. But some of my colleagues were struggling because they had anxiety about, you know, trying something new. And on the day of the test, I remember the guy saying to us, Chris, you're going to pass this. You're like, you've been driving brilliantly. And turned around to some of the colleagues, I went, you're going to fail. There's one person in particular where he said, you're going to fail. And she was so <laughs> nervous. So I went over oh. and I taught her this like visualization technique that I used to use with the nervous adults when there was rock climbing. So just visualize it in a positive way. Got on the truck, started driving it perfectly and passed the test. So this guy was like shocked. Anyway, a year later, he comes back to the same warehouse where I'm working. And he's like, do you remember who I am? I said, yeah, you're the guy who taught me how to drive a fartless truck. He goes, well, I'm, I'm actually the managing director of the organization. The guy who was going to teach you to drive the truck was off ill that weekend. So I just came down rather than lose the business. I thought I came down and, and you know, we've got this commitment. We'll fulfill it. But I always remember you whispering to that colleague of yours and getting someone who was completely nervous to be this amazing driver. In fact, in every team meeting that we have each month, we always talk about the magic whisperer. So that's what he used to call me, the magic whisperer. <laughs> and he said, but we've got an opportunity now to increase our team and we keep talking about you. We want to take you on. We want to get you on a faultless truck instructor course, which costs £3,000 and then employ you. So my initial reaction with my negative mindset was, this is a con. The guy wants me to sign up to some £3,000 course. And I'll pay you. There'll be no job. Like, I'm on £1.20 an hour or something. Like, I, can't, I don't even have £30 in my bank account, not alone £3,000. And you read all this thoughts on my mind, on my face. 
And he's like, we're going to pay for your course. And then we're going to give you, I can't remember what I got now, like 16 or 17,000 pounds He believed in you. Yeah, but what it was, it's two things, isn't it? Passion and luck together make success. I remember back in the days when I was a student, I got an internship where I was paid maybe even less than one pound an hour. But it was never a problem because I knew that it's not my career. I was just there for a couple of months and the goal wasn't to get the, uh, the money. I wanted to learn skills. So at the time, it was the new era of web development. Everybody was crazy about having the first website. And I learned like the theory at university. But then in practice, you need to apply that. And it's much more complicated because you have exceptions all over the place that you don't learn at university. So I, I knew that if I l could learn how to do that, and I don't care if I don't make any money now. If I got the skills, then I can make website and I can charge for one month uh, of development, just like 2,000 euros, which was an absolute fortune for me at the time. So I spent my summer like being paid almost nothing just to learn the skills. Mm -hmm. And then, well, I also had to work at McDonald's. <laughs> I was paid, I don't know, uh, for one month. It was like my first month of student no more grant for the summer, I had to pay the rent, so I was in panic mode. I was paid, I think, seven euros net of taxes per hour. But I would have been depressed if I thought that this is my life. Like, I have reached my potential, my maximum, and I will spend the rest of my life earning seven, eight euros per hour Whereas when you can see the, the cost of the rent and the cost of the life, well, you, you can barely make a decent living with that. How did it feel at the time when you were stuck in one pound an hour? That, that sounds like horrible. Yeah. And then you see this promotion. How did it feel? Well, it's great, actually. On reflection, it's great because we're motivated by two things, Sam, aren't we? We're motivated by pain or pleasure. So if you're motivated by pleasure, you sort of imagine yourself being rich and successful, and that's such a big drive that you'll do anything to gain that goal, that outcome. Or the opposite, you're in such a horrible situation that you never want to be into that situation again. So like you said, I was on such a low wage, on the breadline. I had to eat beans and toast every night for tea because I couldn't afford anything else. And I hated that. And I, and I remember thinking at one point, I don't want this lifestyle anymore. I want to change. So having such a, a negative current situation was so powerful for me because it motivated me to get away from that. And you hear about quite a lot of highly successful billionaires who talk about their life story. And there was homeless at one point or the business went bankrupt or whatever. And sometimes having a horrible situation, being in a negative place or a bad experience is the motivation, the kick up the bum you need to kind of take action. People who often don't have like a positive mindset sit in between that pain and pleasure. They've got just enough to get by. They're just happy enough to just successful enough in their own mindset that they don't really need to take any action they're quite happy to go, uh, carry on on a treadmill positive people actually have a massive goal or a massive pain that they're trying to either get away to or trying to achieve and that's what i had i didn't want to be poor i didn't want to always work in dead-end jobs i wanted to be successful i wanted to help people so it's that pain and pleasure motivation that really triggered me to take action i think that's a common denominator of all people who do exceptional things that requires a lot of hardship, a lot of dedication and taking the, the hard path. They either had like a very uh, tough childhood that they don't want to repeat, <laughs> they want to get away from there, or they have a goal very high in their ambition that they want to reach one day, or even both. Yeah, definitely. I Sometimes when I wake up, 
And I've not done anything like big, you know, not try to like start a new project or succeed something. I, I reflect and think, like, what have I done? And then sometimes I realize that I'm too comfortable in this life. I've just gone back to my normal, comfortable self. So let's do something about what am I going to achieve or what do I like in my life? And it's about taking action. Successful people, people with positive mindset, are action takers. They don't just sit down and let things happen to them. They look for opportunities. They take opportunities. They fail a lot as well. They make so many mistakes. I make a lot of mistakes. But we have great successes as well. You're definitely a doer. That, that success from, my, from being a forklift truck driver, you know, I did that job for a couple of years and the, the guy who owned the company ended up moving to Australia. So again, I thought, oh my God, I'm going to end up going back to warehousing, I'm going to have to like take a step back. And that was my initial reaction, like my negative mindset is coming back. And I thought, no, don't do that. I've had this great experience. I've learned some skills. I've got some qualifications. What's the next step? I never thought I'd do this. So what else can I try and achieve? So then I set a new goal and a new ambition and, and took action to take that. And once you start taking action, making mistakes, learning from mistakes, and then being successful, that becomes your new way of operating. So now I'm always looking for opportunities, always networking. Always say, I say yes to lots of things. Because if you say yes, you meet new people, you get new opportunities, it's great. And then you have new experiences and new successes. So I'm always looking for new opportunities, new reasons to say yeah, and taking new lots of action. Did you feel like being dyslexic was a handicap for job search, promotion, and how you were perceived in the professional space? Yeah, so like I'm in my 40s now, so when I first started job searching, you had to write out your job application form, those paper oh, forms. Oh, yeah, handwritten. I know, yeah. <laughs> Back in the days. So, yeah, so the thing when, you, when you're dyslexic as well, I, I think this is generally speaking, uh, but not for everyone. When you're dyslexic, your handwriting is terrible as well. So your spelling's bad, you can't often read the words properly, but your handwriting is terrible. My handwritten application forms it was so bad like when it was a job i really wanted i had to spend so long doing it i used to write out my address then go away for a couple of hours come back write out the profile go away for like so i did it in stages to to make the handwriting wow. look, look bad where nowadays you can get use a, a cv writing program so you don't even have to write your own cv anymore do you, or you can google doc is your friend yeah 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 that's it isn't it and all the spell checks that the spell check on word docs now is great as well it's so accurate and it picks up grammar and everything but i really struggled with that because when i got to a job interview i was always good because i'm a people person I, i'm a talker and i, I kind of learned techniques to build rapport but I struggled with the application form because I couldn't write that well and my handwriting was terrible. But when I got to the interview stage, uh, I was very successful. Technology made people a bit more equal compared to their handwriting, their dyslexia. Do you consider dyslexia as a disability, a handicap? Uh... Yeah, so it's, so it's on a kind of scale, really. Uh, it is classed as a disability. Uh, and some people okay. suffer. Like, I've got a friend who's dyslexic, and he, he's got it at a more extreme level than me. Uh, so it, it really affects his job applications. And he often stays in one job for a very long period of time, where I kind of got used to being able to job hop. When you job hop, you can get more money, basically. It's a great way to get two, three, five, or 10K pay rises, depending on your position work there for two years and then do the same again you can really increase your salary but it is classed as a disability it, it does struggle i remember when i did that first job the thoughtless truck uh, instructor course i also quickly became an mvq assessor so I used to go to warehouses observe people working and assess them against this criteria to get them a, get them a qualification in warehousing 
Uh, and I, I used to always have to write the word assessor down, and I could never spell it. So, <laughs> I, so one day I went home because my boss picked up on it, and I wrote it out like a thousand times. It was like being in school, like, <laughs> you spelled that wrong, write it out a thousand times on the blackboard. But I actually did that, and I learned other techniques as well. Like, there's um, one of the most common misspelled words in the world is separate. So people spell it, the middle part, either P-A-R-A or P-A-R-E, because people get it really confused. So what you can do is use visualization techniques to help you remember how to spell things. So I remember how to spell separate by imagine jumping out of an airplane and going Wah! and falling all the way down to the floor. Because it kind of makes me <laughs> laugh. And then I remember that separate is spelled like para, like a parachute. So S-E-P-A-R-A, para, uh, T-E, so parachute. And that's how I remember how to spell that word all the time. Good as well. I remember I did drama at school and because of my speech impediment, I really struggled saying certain words. And I always wanted to be an actor when I was a kid as well. And my drama tutor said, you, you struggle saying certain words. How ironic. Words. Yeah, I know, yeah. The, the <laughs> drama tutor went, you struggle saying words. So is this a word you can't say? Just pick a new word with the same meaning. I remember thinking, what a great shortcut. What a great like little trick. And, and life is full of these little shortcuts, these tricks, isn't it? You don't have to, you can do whatever you need to do to be successful. Uh, use the tricks and the shortcuts. How did you manage your job interviews with a speech impediment? Because the job interview is usually all about the first impression. Yes, definitely. So there's like, there's an unconscious bias that actually happens prior to the job interview itself. So if your application form is full of spelling mistakes like mine used to be, <laughs> the interview gets like the horns effect, like they got a bad impression. But that can also happen nowadays if the employers check your social media feed or it's an internal vacancy and the new manager speaks to your old manager and your old manager says, oh, I don't know if they're right for that position. So sometimes a pre-interview opinion affects the interviewer with this unconscious bias. So they sort of go, well, I don't think they're suitable for the job. In the interview, when they meet you, they start from that mindset, like you're not suitable. So they start filtering your answers, looking for evidence that you're not suitable. Whereas you get a hot, mm. if you get a halo effect where someone says you're great, or I don't know, you've got a unique selling point in your application form, or you just got a great repetition, uh, reputation. They want you to be successful. So they're looking for evidence to find that you are suitable for this position. So, Prior to the job interview, and when they first meet you, that first impression creates this uh, unconscious bias. I like you or I don't like you. And that's the starting point for any job interview. So when they met me, they would hear this speech impediment. Uh, and for the low-skilled jobs, it didn't, it didn't really matter because, you know, I was going to be moving boxes. They just wanted someone with strong work ethic. But when I started to get into these professional job roles, uh, it was something I was really working on. So I went to loads of speech therapy. I, I, I did all that in school. And one way I, as a kid, I learned to overcome talking was I'll talk really, 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 really quickly. So I can say it so quick that people stop listening to me. So as I became an adult and applying for jobs, I was still taught really quickly. So I ended up going to Toastmasters and public speaking groups and learning how to speak to groups of professionals. So Chris, I, I like the fact that you took actually your biggest impediment in life and you almost took the career path where that is the hardest to achieve. You're kind of like the, the Batman. Batman <laughs> was afraid of bats. He made it his symbol so that he can project fear to the rest of the world. I love that. I'm the, I'm the new Batman. That's amazing. <laughs> it, it is funny, like, especially with the voice. So when I do hypnotherapy, you have to talk very slowly. You have to have a tonality that is like helping people to go to sleep. And yet your diction has to be very good because you're saying certain words to embed commands. 
But as a person with a list, they're the three things that you can't do. So it is interesting. But I think getting the professional help when I was younger, so I got a speech therapist, went to Toastmasters, which is a public speaking group, to learn how to speak with better diction. I remember like my feedback always in public speaking was, you're so energizing, you're so much. I used to do like a Tony Robbins type thing, like, everyone on your feet, come on, like that sort of stuff. But my negative feedback was, I always spoke really fast. And he enrolled in the hypnotherapy course for two reasons. One, because it's a great tool to kind of help people overcome fears and anxieties. But I knew that I'd have to learn to speak slower to be a hypnotherapist. So again, that was like a mother challenge I set myself. My voice was getting better in terms of my list, so I didn't really have a lisp anymore. But I was talking just so fast uh, because that was like a learnt behaviour. And I thought hypnotherapy will teach me how to slow everything right down. So yeah, again, just found a solution to that problem. And in the meantime, how did that work when you tried to give a good first impression in job interviews? Yeah, so coming back to like the unconscious bias, that's the first like filter in someone's mind. I like you or I don't like you. And the unconscious bias as well, like when they meet you, it's visual. So depending on your ethnicity, your gender, your age, your posture as well, your voice, everything like makes Body language. Yeah, definitely. And it's instantaneous. Everyone thinks people make an opinion in three to five seconds of meeting someone, but it's a lot, lot quicker than that. It's milliseconds. I meet you and instantly I have a, a likability factor. I like you or I don't like you. But then you then because it's a job interview, though, it's a logical process of job interview. And listening to your answers and marking your answers against the criteria on the scorecard, if you have the skills, experiences and personality for that particular job role, so in the job interview itself, if you can answer that first question in a confident way by confidently talking about your competencies, so I've got a high level of knowledge and experience for this role, if your answer is powerful, that can become like the new filter. So this is where the, the whole interview identity model comes in. It's always based on your level of perceived knowledge and experience and your level of perceived confidence, and that creates like a character. So it's really, are you suitable for this role or are you not suitable? So you have two filters. The first one, I like you or don't like you because of my unconscious bias. And if I'm a sexist, racist or ages employer, that can really affect it. Or some unconscious biases are just kind of pop into our mind and we're not even aware of them. There's a, an experiment where they sent hundreds of CVs off to hundreds of employers, but it was all attached with a photograph. One photograph was an overweight person and the other photograph was just a normal weight person, whatever that normal weight person is. Uh, and the conclusion from the experiment was if uh, the employer seen the overweight picture attached to the same application form, they was less likely to receive a job interview. But Sam, as I was talking about that then, if I talked about an overweight applicant, if you imagine an overweight applicant, are they male or female in your mind? I don't picture any gender in particular. Oh, well, so that is so good because 99% of people uh, will pick a gender and most people pick a male. Yeah, really? yeah. So there's three automatic replies to unconscious bias or seeing a stimulus. So the overweight person, as an example, you have a aware and don't care. So you're aware that that person is overweight and doesn't kind of register for you. You are like uh, have a negative opinion against that person because of their weight or their age or their ethnicity or whatever it is. And if you purposely have a negative opinion, it's so hard to pass that job interview. Or, you just, or that just doesn't affect you at all. If you care, you're also trying to do something to overcome that initial unconscious bias. It does affect me, but not on these criteria. What you said about the first impression that will give a bias for the first job interview, 
it's totally true and relevant. Um, I'll give you an example that really affects me. When people, I interact with them to book the interview and we have a couple of emails just to agree on the time, a date, etc. And sometimes I see people that make strange phrasing, mistakes, grammar, or not very articulate in the way they speak. They start with such a handicap on the, on the interview. And the amount of effort that you need to go through and the amount of things they have to demonstrate to remove that handicap is usually so big that just don't pass it. I don't know if it's a bias or if it's actually a predictor of people's ability for the role. I tend to think it's the, the latter. And I tend to think that I'm just developing some prediction models in my mind based on uh, my very early interaction and people's ability to work in the desired job in the company. I'm sure there are cases where it's just like biases and nobody's immune to, to biases. But I do think that early impressions also tell a lot about people. Yeah, they do, because your early impression is based on your values, your belief, and your experiences as well. And in the job world, uh, you often want a certain set of criteria. So if you need someone who can write well and their application's got loads of mistakes in, then that's a logical decision. And it? Not, the grammar's poor and I need someone with good grammar. So they're not going to get, they're not going to be successful here. But if you had someone who had poor grammar and the job was, I don't know, serving burgers at, you know, a burger chain and, and they didn't need to write anything, then that shouldn't be a predictor. But we do make opinions about that person based on everything we see here, all the data, millions of bits of data. And sometimes those generalizations are accurate um, for that individual, but often they're not because people are just so different on different levels, aren't they? Um, maybe not with the uh, writing a CV or an application or emailing you, but if they meet you and they're nervous and anxious because it's such a new situation and the interview does nothing to calm that person down, it's not really that true version of the applicant, is it? Like someone who comes in calm and confident. I disagree because I think that is really revealing about people's ability to handle stress. Yes, that is very true, actually. And the problem with job interviews, like I said at the beginning, they're so far and wide apart and people don't do it that often. People don't speak in public apart from their family and friends and close colleagues that people find it really nervous. When they poll all the different phobias uh, in the world, public speaking being the centre of attention is always the number one polled fear. People are more scared of speaking in public. So people go to job interviews with, with a couple of different barriers one they're nervous because it's very new to them and they don't practice that often two people don't do lots of public speaking um, and people also hate talking about themselves as well and thirdly a lot of people wait until they're desperate to find a new job so they'll either hate the current position or they need you know a certain mm -hmm. financial lifestyle so yeah. the job interview comes this like life or death situation and when you're in life or death situation you're in fight or flight mode you're not in rest and digest which is your normal waking state like if i go to a job interview i'm relaxed and calm because you know i, I kind of know the process i would never wait until i was desperate for a job i'd always be looking when i was happy in the job where other people wait until they're desperate so it's like i need this i need this more than anything in the world if i don't get it that's it uh, so they're just not in the right mindset but like you said though sam it is true though because if people created a different model for applying for job interviews they would be less stressed you can use techniques to manage stress i totally agree that when you're put on the spot you're more stressed and uh, so I I know that very well. I've done a lot of pitches when I was fundraising in front of investors. There's a very known frag that 
when you're pitching and when you're on the board, you, you suddenly lose 20 IQ points. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, it's a fact. I've done it. I know that very well. But that's the same for everybody. Yeah. So I think the question is not whether is it realistic, is it the real person that you're seeing, but is it a fair process? Well, job interviews aren't a fair process because just going back to like the unconscious bias stuff then, so say someone makes an opinion because you're a female applying for a masculine job role or vice versa, so there's just a small unconscious bias in someone's mind. Any bias that affects the employer affects the employer's behavior in that job interview. And then the research shows that the applicant at a subconscious level is affected by how the employer behaves. So that creates a self-fulfilling prophecy. As an example, the employer doesn't like someone based on whatever unconscious bias. So they act a little bit more negative or a little bit more cold in the job interview, expecting the person to fail. Mm -hmm. They find evidence of the person not being that good in the job interview. So they go, ah, I <laughs> knew they was going to be rubbish, and now they are. And vice versa, <laughs> they want you to do well. They, they'll look for the, the positive signs. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. For example, when somebody passes a technical interview with flying colors, I really wish that person would be really great during the last round of like personal interview, cultural fit, and etc. And I really hope that, okay, it's done. I can hire, I can tick the yeah. box. Whereas when somebody passed the tech interview, but okay, not that great, some potential, but not perfect, then I would be much more challenging to see, okay, the tech skill are not completely here yet. Can that person learn that quickly? Can that person handle the stress and all the requirement of the job, although he or she doesn't have all the tech skills yet? And you're, you're right, that can totally influence how people feel during the interview and their level of confidence. Do you ever, do you see, ever what's that program called, Dragon's Den? In America, mm -hmm. it's called like the Shark Tank or something. In England, it's called Dragon. Yeah, I love yeah, Shark yeah. Tank. So you see this in this program. You'll see. Um, so in England, we've got this guy called Peter who's on the show, and he always talks about people should look smart when they're pitching, so they should wear a suit and all that sort of stuff. And when anyone comes in wearing like casual clothes, the camera always pans him. You can see his face going, you know, why is this person wearing a <laughs> pair of shorts and a t-shirt for this like big pitch? They want like a million pounds. So when you see that, his initial questions are always designed to like throw off the applicant. He's always looking for like big mistakes straight away because he don't want them to be successful because he thinks if you're a business person, you dress as a business person and then you pitch as a business person. He always wants them to fail, you can tell straight away. But when they have a really good pitch or a really good product or you can see that he's going to make some money, his whole attitude and his questions change. Then he's like wanting to encourage him and be more supportive, even though he's checking that it's going to be a good business model. But you can see his, his opinions based on how that person dresses because he believes uh, someone who's pitching should be dressed in a certain way. I think the strongest comeback is when people come in a way that is kind of funny because they want to show they have like a lifestyle product and which is very fun and some shark tanks investors they like it some others don't but when the entrepreneurs can demonstrate that they know their business they know their numbers they know what they're doing it actually has the reverse effect because you come back from a position well like, who's that guy i can't take that person seriously wow that person is really doing great and know what he's doing it's actually super strong when you can change people's mind just by your pure raw skills. Yeah, and this is my, my book, like, What Is Your Interview Identity? is about that in the job interview situation. So you come in, you're all these unconscious bias and stuff, but if you can show 
a high level of knowledge and experience, the value you're going to bring to the team, your unique selling points, and you can communicate that confidently because when you're confident, you use longer, more descriptive paragraphs, your language changes as you're speaking, you don't use the same words over and over again, you have less filler words in there, you have more emotive words, and you're not really affected by anything the employer does, you kind of believe in yourself, so you don't really get affected by anything else. Um, and you see this in like Shark Tank as well, the ones who believe in themselves and their product, they just talk and talk and they'll ask questions and they're very engaging, uh, but they know what they're talking about. You get asked about finances, they got the answer straight away. Projections, here, here's three years, here's five years, here's ten years. Uh, competition, I can name all the, uh, the competition companies that will be out there. They know the stuff, so people are reassured by that. They're reassured by that knowledge and experience and your confident delivery. And that's in everything we're doing it. Dating, pitching, job interviews. If you're confident uh, and you know what you're talking about, then you tend to do quite well. Much better. The hard part is to be confident. Yeah, definitely. I've got a great technique that uh, your listeners can do. So, uh, yeah. Sam, you seem like a confident guy. So I don't know if you've got anything that... Do I? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so is there anything that... Uh, you don't need to tell us what this is because it's just going to be a mind visual exercise and the audience can do this as well. But have you got something that makes you scared or worried or anxious? Okay. Yeah, and just think about just, yeah, I have just one. think about that for now. So anyone who's listening, just think of something that makes you scared, anxious, or worried. So a job interview, a pitch, uh, or trying to achieve a goal, something that makes you frightened. When you imagine that in your mind's mm-hmm. eye, do you imagine like you, yourself failing or it not going well or you being nervous and anxious? I try not to because then it will generate a negative feedback loop that will affect my mind my speech, my body language, my thought, everything. Yeah, yeah, so you try not to, but initially, because you are anxious about something, so initially, do you see that thing? That's the first yes, vision, yes. 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 So you're, it sounds like you're probably naturally doing the technique and going to uh, talk about. Yeah, and then I try to overwrite yeah, it. So one way to overwrite it then is you imagine the thing that makes you nervous and anxious. Uh, and just, I don't know, on a scale of one to 10, with 10 being you're very nervous and one being you're calm and confident, Where are, when you imagine the nervous thing, where are you, Sam, on that scale? I would say six yeah, out of ten. Perfect. So imagine you can push that thought outside your mind so you can see the borders of that thought. And for most people, that thought will be a film. So it'll be like moving, you're playing the film yourself and you can see yourself doing this thing and it going wrong. Pause that film. So now you can push the thought outside your mind. You can see the borders of the picture and then pause it. And if it's coloured, let the colour drain away so it becomes black and white. So you've got a stilled black mm-hmm. and white picture. I don't know if you've ever been to an old art gallery, Sam, but you'll see that in old art galleries, they have big frames, <laughs> don't they? Like with big wooden or iron frames. So why don't you to put your black and white still picture in a big iron or wooden frame? Have you done that? Okay, yeah. doing it. And mm-hmm. just when you look at, we're not finished yet, but just as you're looking at that now, that stilled for outside your mind in a black and white frame, on a scale of one to 10, with 10 being the worst and one being it's fine, where do you feel now? Uh, five, not much different yeah, so far. <laughs> so imagine now that I can go in and I can grab hold of that thought, that picture in front of your mind, and I'm going to pull it further away. So I'm pulling it further and further away. And the more I pull it away, further away, the smaller it becomes. So I'm pulling it so it's the size of a postcard. I'm going to pull it further and further away. So imagine it getting smaller and smaller and smaller, so it's the size of a stamp. And then uh-huh. further and further and further away, so it's just the size of a dot on the horizon. And as it's a dot on the horizon, how does that make you feel now, Sam? Well, now I'm wondering, what should I see? Is it white screen, black screen? 
So in a session when I do that, then that will be, uh, we allow the uh, the client to kind of see whatever they see. But what generally happens is that if you control the thoughts in your mind, if you see something, it's got an automatic emotional reaction. So you see a spider and you're scared of spiders, you'll feel anxious or fear. But if you, if you see someone you love or someone you admire, you feel joy or happiness straight away. So what you see, you feel. But if you see something negative, that feeling is so overpowering that you will perform bad in a job interview because you're so anxious or you'll be terrible pitching because that nervousness is just so strong on you. But you can control what you see. So if you push that thought outside your mind and push it further and further and further away so it gets smaller and smaller, harder and harder to see, you're disassociating with those emotions. So that emotion of fear and anxiety will start to go smaller and smaller as well. So it's a great, easy and simple technique. If you move the thought away from your mind's eye, the negative emotion will also move away. And then if you've got that blank screen that you talked about, Sam, you can imagine yourself being successful, Mm -hmm. being amazing. You can see yourself standing more confident and even take on that posture in real life and start having that positive self-talk and acting in a way that you would act when you're confident uh, and powerful. Uh, So it's a great technique. Move the negative thought away and then replace it with a positive thought. I like your technique. Actually, what I used to do is I skip the part where it's I'm taking the picture away, away, away until it becomes like a, a tiny, small stamp. And I uh, bypass that and I draw like the picture that I want to have. Like my vision of success. Yes, yes. nice. So, How do I score the goal in the top yes, corner? Yes, perfect. So... Um, like I said before, I think you're quite a confident person and confident people naturally do that a lot more. So if you're kind of confident, you don't really see the negative stuff. You kind of go, right, I'm not feeling good about this thing. And then you imagine a positive thing that you want to achieve. So it's a little bit about the pain and pleasure motivation. You're probably more motivated by the pleasure. So you see something and you want to go get it. Probably. Where a lot of people who have a lot of anxiety or fears will see the negative thing and that'll be more powerful for them. So they often get motivated by pushing away from that negative thing. Okay, so they first need to take out the negative emotions and anxiety before having like their picture of success. Yeah, often. So it depends, you know, what camp people are in. And there's not one therapy or one technique for every single person. It's kind of working out what's Mm -hmm. good for for different people. But yeah, most anxious people. That makes sense. Yeah, it's really good. But yeah, most anxious people will see the negative thing. So we get rid of that first. So passing job interview is a lot about their first impression, then conveying the confidence, the skills, etc. But you know, I remember back in the days when I was applying to a lot of job interviews, one of the strongest bias was your university. Mm, yeah. I grew up in France. It's a very special country where you could have job applications and it's written black and white. You can apply only if you graduate from this university. Wow. Like black and white. I think if such thing was in the UK or in America, this would be illegal. But in France, it wasn't. And the reason is uh, the French education system, on one hand, it's free meritocratic, or at least back in the days, if you wanted to get to the top engineering school, you didn't have to pay because that's the meritocratic system. But on the other hand, there were a lot of jobs and companies that were hiring only from the top five universities and they were not hiding from it. How do you overcome like uh, such bias and have you noticed such bias based on people's university education also in the UK? So that is such a good question. So in England, like you said, we'd never be able to say 
we only take applications for people from this university. But there's always an unconscious bias, or a conscious bias maybe, because if someone's got Oxford and Cambridge on their application, we just perceive that those people are very academic and intelligent. We just make a presumption, which is the unconscious bias in play. This person is going to be suitable for the role because they've got this level of education at the best university in the UK or one of the best universities uh, in the world. It's a little bit like uh, the whole the old saying about uh, wearing the old school tie, like the infinity bias. If I got something in common with you, Sam, you're more likely to like me. So if I went to the same university, even if it's not one of the best ones, I'm quite likely to want to interview you because we've got an affinity, we've got something in common. Even a little thing like having the same name or the same sounding surname uh, creates infinitive bias or, or even if you both play tennis or something. It's great a technique actually because all you got to do when you meet an employer is research them on social media before you meet them. And as you're walking upstairs when they get you from reception to go to the interview room, just talk about the thing you know you got in common and they'll start liking you um, straight away. Infinity bias is really important. The other one as well, just to mention, just to throw in, is uh, if you're attractive as well. So there's a whole research down on a bias called uh, beautiful is good. So people perceive people who are attractive, they think they're going to be a better employee because they think they're going to be more reliable, more hardworking and have more personal skills than someone who they presume is unattractive as well. On that one, attractive people are perceived to be more intelligent, not just by employers, by everybody. There's a lot of research, random picture of people. The more attractive, the more people look intelligent. And the, the thing is as well, like people are like, well, I'm ugly, so uh, that's, that's going to be a negative for me. But it's, it's not because uh, the eye is in the beholder. Little things like your posture, holding your head up higher, wearing clothes that suit your body type as well, uh, or colors that suit your uh, complexion, um, the way you, uh, your diction, your pace and your communication all these things, even like wearing, uh, you know, nice smelling perfume or aftershave, make uh, you look attractive. But the main thing that makes you look attractive, apart from you know someone being attracted to a certain type, is confidence. If you're confident, you stand confident, you talk confident, you act confident, and we fancy confident people. So work on your confidence, and your attractiveness will just increase anyway. It doesn't work where the interviewer has a good yes, memory. Yes, a trained interviewer as well. This is the thing as well. Most interviewers haven't been trained, so they're just as nervous as the applicants where mm. HR staff... Yeah, really? yeah, so HR staff are often trained and know about unconscious bias and all this interview techniques and the sprint job interview is uh, research shows is more likely to predict job performance than an unstructured job interview. But if you're interviewed by just your potential line manager, especially in a small organisation, they've often not been trained how to interview people because they're just managers who are recruiting. So they've not got all this uh, experience. So they're often quite nervous as well. But going back to the whole university thing. So we'll just imagine that I live in France and a company is saying, right, I only take applications from the people who've been to these universities. So the rest of us, I've got no, I've got no chance. I'm dyslexic you know didn't even go to university uh, so i got no chance so what i would do for that organization is i would use the power of, of social proof and the power of social media so there's a great online cv that uh, got uh, like viral about five or eight years ago so this guy was applying for loads of web design jobs and he just couldn't get a job anywhere i don't know if it's about his uh, university but he just couldn't get a job anywhere so he thought right, i need a new approach Everyone is sending out CVs, resumes, and, and online application forms, and it's just not cutting the mustard. So he created an online CV, but he made it look like an Amazon sales page 
So his product, well, him, he had reviews on there. He had five stars and it looked just like an, like a description and everything. It was so good. No one had, had ever done that before. It was so good that it went viral and he got offered jobs like Microsoft, Google and Amazon. So you just do things to stand out. If you do something successful and get in the public media, you get people talking about it. I always talk about people using social media. Don't just go on LinkedIn and talk about how you took your dog for a walk or something like that. Like talk about industry facts and information like future predictions in, in the sector you're in. Join all the LinkedIn groups that are around your industry and give people advice and support. So when someone's searching for you online, they go on your LinkedIn page and it's just all about your knowledge, experience and skills in that job or, or in that industry. That's going to create, hopefully, a positive unconscious bias. This person talks about industry stuff. They must live and breathe that job role. So I want someone like that because they'll have strong work ethic. I think it requires for people to have like really a passion about what they're doing. And unfortunately, 75% of people just don't like their jobs. Yeah, and this is the problem. And I can see that through the, all the applications I receive. I see the extreme majority of people, they, they just look like an occupation to heat up a seat on something they don't really feel passionate. They're not particularly good because they're not like emotionally involved in what they do. And, well, that doesn't cut through the this noise. Is so, yeah. The competition is way too high nowadays. I, I know, because your competition now isn't just people in your hometown. Do you remember, like, my parents? It's the it's world. The world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's global competition. People can work from the bedroom around the world. So your, your competition is high. This is what I talked about before. People wait until the extreme when they're sick of a job, they're depressed, they're stressed, to then look mm. for something else. You should always look while you're happy because then you're applying for jobs and you're not that bothered if you get it or not because you're very happy anyway. So you're waiting for really um, good opportunities. But employers are looking for passion. They're looking for work ethic. They're looking for people who can fit into the to their organization, the culture of that company. Like Amazon are great at interviewing because they have these leadership principle interviews where they have the 14 leadership principles and everyone who's employed has to meet these principles because it's all about the company culture, this. And you get interviewed four or five times before being offered a job. So in most interviews or most companies, it's two interviews, isn't it? But they interview you five to six times because they want to make sure they're picking the right passionate people. Every job I had, I think I had at the very least five rounds. Wow. Oh, wow. So IBM, yeah. my first job at IBM, I had, I think, uh, 10 interviews, PwC. Uh, that was the quickest, uh, maybe only six. And then in investment banking at UBS, I had... Uh, nine interviews uh jp morgan was i think eight yeah, or nine yeah. as well so there you can see because always yeah, very so tough. these organizations that you mentioned in there like the the big organizations so they're so on their recruitment because they know if they get someone after one or two interviews they could have just faked that they could be anyone company and then they start they're not good enough they cost us money or we have to let them go and then we recruit it's very costly so the big organizations now are moving to this more in-depth job interview processes where they get the right person. But once you've employed, they really support you, they encourage you, you know, the, the pay, the benefits are normally really good. I think Amazon give you shares, don't you, in the organization. So they, they want to get people and then mm -hmm. uh, the right people and then let those people grow in their organizations to make them and the company successful. I think one of the biggest misconception from people who try to apply to get another job is 
they think it's a purely transactional contract where you exchange time for money. Actually, it's not. You get three things from a job. Of course, you get the money. That's what you need to pay your rent and to leave and to build your financial freedom. But you also get the branding from the company and you get the skills and training. And unless you're a very seasoned person with 10 years of experience, the company is actually making a choice to invest in you because almost nobody has all the skills required at day one. So they're making a bet on you that by training you on how to be good at this role, you will be like a good performer and you will be enforced all the good behaviors that the company wants to be enforced in their culture, in their work ethics, and to meet their objectives. And if people had, I think, this mindset when during the job interview, there would be much less stress about, oh, what do I know today, etc., and more about, what do I want to learn? How good am I at learning and picking up stuff quickly? Yeah, so one of the new ways of interviewing is strength-based job interviewing. So the structured job interview is where they mm-hmm. ask you behavioral questions so the zebra don't uh, change its stripes. So they ask you questions about your past experiences and that's the idea is if you do A, B and C in the past, you're going to do that in the future. Or situational job interviewing where I'll ask you a future-based job interview question. How would you do this in the organization? And the idea is that if you're new to the role, you can talk about the theories and the processes that you should know through your whatever your academic qualifications but the new way is strength-based job interviews, so it's more like preference. So do you prefer working on your own or working in a team? Do you prefer following rules and regulations or being innovative or creative? So they ask you more of these preference. What's the best way for you to work? What's the best way for you to be successful? And what they're doing there really is understanding your motivation, your stress, your working style. And again, seeing if that fits into the organisational's culture and the, and the department that you're applying for. Uh, most companies as well kind of mix them up. They have a little bit of behavioral situation or a little bit of strength-based as well. But the strength-based interview is like a new a new way of recruiting. I didn't even know the concept, but I think we have only strength-based interview. Yeah, well, you will do because you're, <laughs> in our yeah, so these companies that you're working for, like they're leaders in all this sort of stuff. Six rounds of interviews, asking all about the culture company. At yeah, least. Yeah, yeah, at least. <laughs> but if you sort of think about general jobs so you know you get low medium and high skilled jobs and and generally speaking the medium sector is like where most of the jobs are 25 to 50 thousand pound jobs you know that sort of stuff most people work in there and in those job interviews you often get one or two rounds of job interviews and each round's 45 minutes in your experience chris why do some people have kind of a flat progression in their career while some other people, they can just skyrocket and seems to get promotion after promotion, either within the same company, either being headhunted by other companies. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. Uh, so if you're narcissistic, you're more likely to go for any job because you don't really care about anything. All you care about is your own personal success. So there's a great book called Snakes in Suits, which is about psychopaths in the workplace. Uh, so if you're a psychopath in the workplace, it don't mean you're going to murder people, by the way. But you tend to do quite well because you just go for things and you want to be successful and you'll, you're not bothered about speaking to the uh, CEO or anything like that and you'll just go for job roles that are a lot higher position than you're at. Where if you don't have that mindset and you have the opposite maybe, that like you are anxious and you've got imposter syndrome, you don't think you're good enough for, to go for that role. I've seen people go for a job specification and they say, oh, I can do that, I can do that, I can do that, I can do that, I can do that. Oh, I can't do that, I'm not going to go for the job role. So you can do 95% of the job 
this one duty on there that they said they can't do, so <laughs> oh, I'm not going to go for that job, bro. It's, re- it's absolutely ridiculous. It's because we're scared of failing. If you're scared of failing, you'll never achieve anything in your life. You'll always have these flatline job roles. People who are successful, a bit like we talked before about my personal journey, I will take risks because I am happy to fail. I am happy to make mistakes. I will go for a job role that I'm not that uh, I might not get just to have the experience or just to have the opportunity or or maybe I will get it because you don't even know what the employer is looking for half the time. They might like you because you're a work ethic and your personality compared to your skills and experience. You were saying this a minute ago, Sam, weren't you? Some companies will train you up. Um, but people go, I can't apply for that because it's £10,000 more than what I'm on now. Who's going to give me a £10,000 pay rise? The will do is you act confident in the job interview. So don't be scared of failing because this is why you've been on the same salary for the last 10 or 15 years in the same position that you don't enjoy because you're afraid to try something new. Successful people are afraid, but they're willing to take the risk. They're willing to make mistakes because they'll just learn and develop all the time. You have to be a risk taker. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you if you stay in the same role forever and you get too comfortable, that's where you get bored. And when you get bored is where you stop learning and you stop being engaged in your career, in what you're doing, and well, we all know where it ends. You end in a in a cupboard doing boring stuff that you don't want yeah. to do. <laughs> and then you'll be one day depressed. Oh, I really need to leave this position. It's absolutely horrible. I can't take it anymore. And you're not in the right mindset to find a new and it's, job. It's worse now because, if, like my parents and their parents, you you left school at 14, got the apprenticeship, worked in a job for life, and got a golden handshake at the end. Oh, you went to uni, did the same thing, got into a big company. You went to Oxford or Cambridge, then got the golden handshake. So you worked in one organisation, one job for the whole life. These days, though, you work for the same organisation. That job role that you're doing now will be completely different in five or ten years' time because technology is changing at such a fast pace that some jobs are becoming automated so people in the organization will need to be retrained for new roles globalization remote working big data artificial intelligence is changing the job sector you know it's changing company company um uh, how companies operate and how companies hire and, and what people will be doing so if you hate change and you're scared to get a pay rise because you think you're going to be unsuccessful because you have the skills and, and, and qualities, you'll find that in the next five or ten years in your company because the job roles are changing. This Most of us will be working in jobs in 20 years that currently don't exist. So you've got to be adaptable now. This is what employers are looking for. You've got to be adaptable. You've got to be creative problem solver. You've got to have people skills. You've got to be confident about taking action. The only thing that stays constant is that nothing stays constant. Yes. Perfect. Yes. Yeah. Do you know what as well? Like just talking about change as well. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, Sam, but uh, we've, we're going to get interviewed by AI as well. This will be the new thing. Uh, so we're doing a lot. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah. <laughs> so we, we do, we, there's a little bit now. So you do video interviewing. So a lot of big companies will, um, for, the, for the first round of interviews, you do it on their company website. A video pops up uh, and there's uh, three questions and you got to answer three questions. Uh, for one or two minutes for each answer. And then the the HR team will analyze uh, those videos and see who's going to go to the next round. But what they're saying in the future is they'll have an, an AI system that does that. So you'll upload a video with your answers and the AI will scan your answers and everything else about you and then make a decision based on you. <laughs> they currently do that with CVs. So some companies use it where they scan all the CVs and look for keywords and terminology and that sort of stuff. Yeah. But they reckon that will be the first round of job interviews in the, in the future as well. In your experience, 
What's the common denominator of people who have successful and happy career? Is it confidence, education, intelligence, work ethics, something else? It's something else, actually. So the problem is, let's take the general person. You go to university, you left, you leave your university, and you're kind of desperate for a job. So ideally, you get a job that you, you went to university for. So if you went to university to be a doctor, you go and, you go and become a doctor, and you're quite happy. But most people will go get a degree, and like, I need a job, and they, they're getting a job. And as they go into that job, they start being successful because they've got work ethic, and they're reliable, and everything else. So they get a couple of pay rises and as you get a couple of pay rises, you're probably in your 20s by now, you might get a mortgage and you kind of get trapped in to that job because if you go back to the job you originally wanted, you're probably going to have to start on a lower pay rise and you might not be able to pay your mortgage or your bills or you might even have kids uh, by now. Carry the change. Yeah, so people get sometimes financially trapped into job roles. So when I do mm. careers advice for professionals, uh, they tell me this story that they kind of got trapped into this job role. Where what you kind of want to do is get paid for your passion. So when you're paid for your passion, you tend to be successful. And sometimes, and you have to weigh up your own situation and your own risk, you sometimes have to say no to one opportunity and wait for the new opportunity. And in a career, you can hold out for the company that you kind of want to work for or the position that you, you best desire and then be successful in that role. You'll tend to be quite happy in your career. But, you know, it's hard that because some people need the money because you've got bills to pay or you might already have kids or have commitments. And it's, it's a very hard choice. I know people, they started a career in something because they, they were a lot of demands. So they just applied, they got admitted. They worked three years, promoted, six years, promoted. But that's not what they want. They want to be whatever, designer, project manager, etc., or software engineer. And... They, they came to a point in their life where they're 30 years old. They have that, yeah, mid-level salary, not particularly huge, but comfortable, let's say around 50K. But now if they want to start what they really want, they will have to start from the bottom. And that's a hard move. It's both scary financially and scary emotionally. Yeah, yeah it is. And I get, I get a lot of clients with this and... It's very difficult, but what you have to weigh up, if this is, you're in this situation now, you have to weigh up. If I stay in this job and I have the same salary, so I got, you know, just imagine it's a good salary, so I got a big house and I got going five or six holidays a year and I buy, you know, all these all these nice things, but I'm stressing the job and that's making me angry and then, you know, maybe I fight with my partner or whatever. Are you happy with, with that situation? Or if you had to take a pay cut and maybe you had to sell your house and get a smaller place, I want to go on two or three holidays, but you was happy and then hopefully your relationships and your interactions are a lot better. If you have those two choices, like which one long-term do you want? Which one are you more drawn to? And for some people it is the money because that's so important for them and that lifestyle. But for other people, for me personally, it'd be the, the happiness and the joy and, and having good interactions with the people that I love. But it's a personal choice that you have to make. We have one life. You have to live it the way you want to live it. When you're 90 years old and you look back on your life, are you going to be happy that you worked 20 hours a, a day, you was in a high-stress job, uh, you didn't get to see your family? Are you, or would you be happy if you you know, had a low-paid job so you couldn't go on all these holidays, but you was happy and you, you know, you're successful in terms of a joy in your life? That's the choice you need to make, and it's a personal, individual choice. Chris, I'm surprised by your answer. Have you ever seen somebody who's genuinely happy doing a job, like every single day, that they don't like, they hate their co colleagues, they hate their boss, they hate their company, it's not what they want to do from their life, 
and being happy just because they get good money. Yep, some people do, but it's more about uh, people. Pe- really, it's more about though people uh, are happy with humility. So when we're in routine, we're quite happy. We don't like change that often. So uh, this is why sometimes people stay with partners that are quite abusive to them as well because we find it scarier to, to get out of that relationship. And, and there's other reasons in that situation as well. But some people like the identity as well of having money. So they kind of, kind of talk about how their job role is this and how they get this money. And that's why, that's why they have the money because they like to show it off to other people as well. So that can be... A, their persona can be the thing that uh, that gives them the motivation. The whole other thing as well, when we talked about pain and pleasure as well, if they came from a poor family uh, and they got motivated to do these high-paid jobs because they never wanted to be poor and desolate, they might want to hold on to that thinking. If I take a 20 grand pay rise, uh, maybe I'll end up you know, uh, in this negative place that I had when I was younger that I, that I want to stay away from. So there's loads of different reasons why people hold on for the money, even though they're not generally happy. The final one on that as well, people don't often realise how unhappy they are until a snapping point. So what generally happens is you go to a job, you, you mm. new jobs, you tend to like anyway because it's new, it's exciting, it's a bit different, you're getting developed. So you, you often like your first job for the first year. But maybe a new manager comes in who manages in a different way and you think, oh, I don't really like this management style, <laughs> but you know, I kind of get on with it. And then the company vision changes or then you get promoted and it's a little bit more stressful. But because you're successful and you're good at your job, you get more responsibility, maybe more promotions, which creates more stress. So it's, you get all these stepping stones of anxiety and stress. You don't realize it's building this weight up on your shoulders. And the clients that I come uh, that come to me for like anxiety and stress to talk about this, they go, I, did, I just didn't realize it was growing then. I kind of woke up one day and I had this black cloud over me. Or I had the weight of the world on my shoulders. And it, they, they use those metaphors <laughs> when they're talking to me. And I say, but when did this start? And when I get them to analyze when it starts, they go, God, it was 20 years ago. And they didn't realize it started so long ago. Because we just, we get used to things, don't we? We get familiar with things. And we have um, processes to deal with things, don't we, as well? And, and the process for some people is I get stressed at work. So I shout when I get home and I have like an argument with my loved ones. And it's a process that because we sometimes get rid of stress by shouting. Rah! We get it out of us like that. But unfortunately, we, we tend to take it out on the people we love. And then your relationship breaks down as well. Uh, and that sometimes is the snapping point for people when they realize, God, my relationship's broke down and it's, it's linked to my career. So you don't know is what I'm saying. You don't often know it's it's building up this stuff. My personal experience having been in, in the big companies where lots of people were earning a lot of money and being unhappy is they, uh, they tie their identity and their personal worth to their job yeah. status. Yeah. And then they became trapped because of their lifestyle. Yeah. And I could see them on a daily basis they were miserable from the morning, 7 a.m. They, they had like this face, like a zombie forced to go to work. And I talked to them like in private, hey, what are you doing here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and after a while, like they started to talk a bit more openly about how, how they felt. And the answer was always the same. They felt, they felt trapped in the golden jail. Yeah, definitely. Especially when you tied in. I have never seen... I have never seen in my entire life a single person with a high salary who hates his or her job being happy. And they always overcompensate. So I, either just like you described, you unleash on your loved ones, on your wife, on your husband, on your kids, on whoever. Uh, you overspend because you, you hated your day. So you feel like you need to get drunk and you didn't like to, 
an escape, so you spend your entire evening shopping, etc. I've never seen a single person, no matter how much they earn, if they hate their job, being happy in their life and making any good use of their money. Yeah, but uh, when you got loads of money as well, like you tend to think, right, if I go on five holidays, they waste yeah, it. Yeah, no, they yeah. waste it. Yeah, they are. They have nothing left at yeah. the end. This is actually how people can earn a lot of money and being broke. Yeah. They hate their life so much because they accumulate like all this negative energy the entire day. They only wait for the end of the day and then the end of the week and then the holiday and then the retirement. They hate it so much that it's tr it's draining them. They have like no mental energy. They can't do anything they like after that because they <laughs> their day is so horrible. So they need to unleash and all the money they earn is never making them yeah, happy. Yeah. I haven't seen a single person and I've, I've stayed like years and years in big companies. Yeah. It's funny as well because they do compensate. Don't they? Like they'll buy, I've, I've, I've met people who and they said, oh, I spend my money on like suits and I spend, my... when, when you do coaching sessions, you often break things down into they specifics. Do. And they'll say something, oh yeah. But they're not yeah, happy. Yeah. But they say stuff like, oh, I bought, you know, last month I bought like three or four suits. I go, oh, right. And what about the month before? Yeah, I bought uh, like some Armani suits the month before. I'm like, so how often do you wear? How often do you wear these? <laughs> oh, I've not worn them yet. And they just spend them because they get the uh, they exactly. get the release that um, you know that buzz from spending dopamine, yeah, rush. dopamine rush from spending uh, by spending the money they got. So they're trying to be happy and they're doing things to, to uh, and and they're lying to themselves. Yeah. You know, you we were talking about the bias that interview have like from the first impression. And they're trying to see the good things when the first impression was good and the bad things when the impression was not good from the candidate. These people are doing exactly the same. They're trying to convince themselves that, and they try to find good reason to stay in a role that makes them unhappy. Well, look, I can buy this new Rolex and this suit. And I had colleagues, like, they were wearing, like, 2,000-pound tailored suit. They still were not yeah. happy. <laughs> but they, they, they tell themselves stories as well. So they'll go, right, you know, I'm not, I'm not exactly. that happy uh, in my job, but should they leave? But I can't leave because I buy four or five hour man suits every week, but they don't wear these suits. So they don't, the story is a fake story because they think they need the money for, for this lifestyle. They have that's... built their own golden chain. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. perfect. They, so th they have built this narrative that the only reason they need to stay there is their status and they're, they're going to like... Um, Bear with that because they would find another distraction to get some dopamine rush. They get suits, they get some weekends, very fancy, etc. They get to luxury restaurant. Yeah, they're still miserable at the end of the week, and they know that deep. Within that that them. identity is so powerful as well because you're saying, you know, uh, I'm an investment uh, investment banker on you know hundred thousand or two hundred thousand k a year or whatever, and then you know, like when your friend when you see your friends, they can't always ask about your job. But if you quit that job and th then your friend. Yeah, who yeah, are you? Who are you? And when your friends ask you who you are, <laughs> you're destroyed. What, what are you gonna say? <laughs> Where if you're kind of confident who you are, if what you value is happiness, then when people say, "Oh, like, what do you do?" You say, "Well, I'm, you know, I'm passionate about this thing. I'm, ha I'm happy doing this job." Well, your identity is more about what you value rather than uh, what you're doing for for the position for the job role in your life. And maybe that's the key to be happier. Yeah. Be passionate about your values. Yeah, definitely. Be passionate about your values and then find a way to get paid for your passion. I think going back to those strength-based interviews now, the good thing about that is as an applicant, you can... Also, the, the interview is like a two-way process. So you kind of want to join an organization who, whose company values meet your personal values. 
uh, you know, whose management style meets the way that you want to be uh, led, um, whose vision is in line with kind of what you want to achieve in life. And because you can apply for jobs on a global scale, there's companies that, that must meet the kind of key indicators that make you motivated, happy, and passionate. And if you find that the employer gets a great employee because you're going to work a lot harder naturally, and you find a, a great environment to work and grow in because you're going to be proud to go to that place, you're going to be happy in that place, and hopefully you'll be successful. That's a fantastic advice. Get paid for your passion. Absolutely. If you combine that, you'll have a very fulfilling life. Chris, thank you so much for sharing all your experience, knowledge and wisdom. Yeah, it's been a really interesting chat. It's been really fun, Sam. Where can people can find more about you and your book? Yep, so my website is uh, employmentking.co.uk. So loads of advice on there for job interviews. The book is uh, What is Your Interview Identity, which is on every bookstore. So Amazon and the rest of them as well. Uh, and I'm just on LinkedIn. So you can contact me directly on LinkedIn. Awesome. And we will include all the links in the description of this episode. Thank you for listening. I hope you found this episode enjoyable, inspiring, and educational. In this era of instant gratification, it is more important than ever to train our delayed gratification muscle. So keep learning, keep improving by 1% every day. You may not see the results right now, but this is a secret of all the successful people I've met. Please help me spread financial education by sharing this podcast with your friends and community. I would love it if you could also leave us a review. It really helps the show. Now, I would like you to forget about all the advertising that is being pushed to us on a daily basis and think about your personal financial goals. What do you really want to achieve with your money? If you have financial objectives, then check out the Nova Money app. Nova is an AI that will show you how to set financial goals and how to achieve them. A plan is only useful if you can follow it. That's why Nova will send you daily motivational messages to give you the strength to ignore the daily temptations of spending money and stay focused on your goals. Like other budgeting apps, Nova connects all your bank accounts in one place to give you the full picture. The difference is that the Nova AI will do all the budgeting and tracking for you. The second difference is that unlike many free personal finance apps, we don't sell users data. All your data is encrypted and will remain completely private. Make sure that you're investing in your financial education. Make sure that you're building your financial freedom. And I'll speak to you in the next episode.